Well, good morning and welcome to uh, Christ Community Leewood Campus uh, on this beautiful, balmy morning. Thank you for coming. And uh, I'm Tom Nelson, and we are really delighted you're here. We really are. Um, and uh, so I trust you sense Christ's presence here and the warmth of God's people who have gathered together. You know, lawyers are often the butt of jokes, aren't they? Um, but everyone needs a good lawyer. Uh, I realized this several years ago when uh, I found myself in a rather, well, a dispute with a leasing car company in which I'd leased a car. And uh, they wanted to add a bunch of charges on at the end. And uh, I didn't want to give them my money. <laughs> uh, you know, you don't mess with Tom's money. I mean, you know, and I felt like I was getting jacked around, you know, and I was not happy. So I got a 1-800 number, you know, you do those kind of things, and I waited, and I finally got a human being. Uh, and I protested that these extra fees they hadn't told me about, and like that, and they were just like, look in the fine print. It's there, Mr. Nelson, you know, and there was just no budging. You ever had that experience? So frustrated, I hopped the phone, and I called a friend of mine who is a good lawyer. And I explained to him, and he said to me, Tom, he says, give me the information, I'll take care of it. And uh, he copied me uh, the letter he sent to this leasing car company. It was rather intense. And no kidding, like four or five days later, I got a first-class letter from this leasing car company, and it started out, Mr. Nelson, we apologize for blah, 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 blah. And uh, he said, uh, the letter said, these charges have uh, now been diminished. They're not a part of your whatever. You know, there was a long thing like that. And then they said at the end, and I like this part. Now imagine me getting this letter. First, I was glad that they waived the charges. At the end, they said, Mr. Nelson, I hope you'll use us for your transportation needs in the future. I went... <laughs> Like, blank I will, <laughs> over my dead body. Well, it's kind of what I said under my breath. I'm pastor. I couldn't say too many bad things, right? Um, <laughs> but all of us have found ourselves in a situation where we can't handle things ourselves. We need a good lawyer. I discovered it that day in this leasing car company, and it's something for all of us to grasp, that we all need good advocates. A good lawyer not only can save you money, a good lawyer can save your life. It's one thing to be in a dispute against a car company or another person or have a broken relationship with a human being. It's quite another thing to have a broken relationship with God. And this is the theme of the text we are going to look at this morning. The writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, and as a church family, we've been going through this marvelous book called Hebrews in the New Testament. And the theme this morning in chapter 7 that we are going to look at is that everyone needs an advocate. We all need a good lawyer. And if you brought your Bible this morning in electronic or paper form, I'd like you to dive in with me to this amazing text in Hebrews chapter 7. It's in the New Testament, so if you can find Hebrews, it's a big book, right? So as we enter back into this New Testament book, let's remember that the author through this sermon, is what it originally was, is repeatedly making a persuasive case that Jesus is the true and better that Jesus stands head and shoulders in a class all by himself. And as we come to chapter 7, we see Jesus' brilliant deity and humanity on display. At the center is his atoning sacrifice for our sin. And Jesus, as the good advocate, the high priest, is the true and better lawyer. He is the one that can reconcile us as guilty sinners to have a relationship with God himself. Now, I, know I want to give all of us a heads up because as we enter into this section of Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 8, 9, and 10 uh, have often been described by 
readers of Scripture and scholars of Scripture and preachers of Scripture as the Leviticus of the New Testament. If you study the Old Testament, you know Leviticus can be rather difficult to navigate through. So I want to say heads up in this message and the next four as we enter into 7, 8, 9, and 10, this is rugged terrain of the highest level in the literary structure of the New Testament. Maybe we can think of it this way. You know, it's snowing out and most of us, or at least I certainly love to snow ski, and a lot of us do spring break or other times we go to the mountains and we ski. And if you've skied, you know that you are given a heads up based on what the run is going to be, what, what it's going to look like on this downhill run. So when you start skiing, you go to the bunny slope, right? But when you get past the bunny slope, then you go to the next level of the runs that you can handle. And the next one you see when you get off the lift and get to the top of the run is a green slope. And if you make it down the green slope without killing yourself or breaking a leg, you get to the blue. That's even more demanding, more invigorating terrain. And you also get to the black diamond, and you're really making it. You know, this is pretty exhilarating. I'm doing the black diamond. But then, if you want the most exhilarating terrain, you go to the double black diamond. The double black diamond is seriously intense. A A double black diamond means two things besides your heart racing every moment, steep and deep. And I want to suggest to you, for those who enter the double black diamond, it is exhilarating. And here, in this section of Hebrews, we have the double black diamond. It is an invigorating train, so I need you to enter in with me. It's exhilarating. It's filled with all kinds of rich truths if we are willing to put on our ears and hearts and engage. So will you engage? It's, I have to tell you up front, a message on Melchizedek is double black diamond, okay? But it's really worth, it's really worth it. So hang in there with me as we look at it. Now, as we enter 7, chapter 7, in this section of Hebrews, the writer raises two questions that I'd like us to explore together. The first is, who is this better advocate? Who is this better advocate? And secondly, why do we need this better advocate anyway? So first, let's look at the first part of the chapter that addresses who is this better advocate. Now, the way the writer of Hebrews, remember he is writing to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus who are well steeped in the Old Testament. They have embraced the gospel, but they are beginning to drift from the gospel. And so what he does is he takes them back in an Old Testament flashback to Genesis chapter 14. Now, this Old Testament flashback is the first part of chapter 7. So I want to encourage you today, uh, maybe if you have been time inside or this week, to read through this marvelous chapter. But in the first part of the chapter is a look back. It is an Old Testament flashback to a very surprising figure. His name is Melchizedek, and he is a surprising high priest. Now, when we go back to the Old Testament 2,000 years earlier, At first blush, it would seem like the Hebrew writer is featuring a rather incidental and remote figure. This figure pops literally out of nowhere with no genealogy, no context in the narrative of Abraham. Now again, his name is important in the Hebrew text. Melchizedek is two Hebrew words that tell us about him. The first part is king and the second part is righteousness. 
He is the king of righteousness. Now, I run into a lot of biblical names. Um, I'm one of them, Thomas. <laughs> you know, I run into, my daughter Sarah is a biblical name. We often name our children biblical characters. David, Mary, Esther, if you could list that. But I have to tell you, in all my life, I have never run into a kid named Melchizedek. Have you? So kids, I don't know, if, or even students, if you don't like your name, you know, I like my name. I, I wasn't one of those guys that hated my name, but maybe you think, man, your parents named you the weirdest name. I want you to look at him. If you're sitting next to him this morning, do me a favor, okay? Look at him, kids, students. If you're sitting next to your parents, especially guys, young guys, look in their eyes and say, thank God you didn't name me Melchizedek. Would you do that? Come on. Okay, you got that? I mean, it's not the normal name, let's face it. But why is it so important here? What's going on? Well, as I alluded to, it means the king of righteousness. And when you look at chapter 7, verse 1, we begin to understand why. Melchizedek is attached to a place, Salem, which is Jerusalem. It means the city of peace. So you have the king of righteousness and of peace. Melchizedek is also the first priest mentioned in the Bible, and it's important not to miss this, and this will be more important as we walk through this section, that Melchizedek is both priest and king. In the Old Testament, that is not common. In the Mosaic law, priests and kings were separate roles. So I want you to keep that tucked into your mind and heart as we go through the journey. So let's go back to Genesis 14. Let me just touch on this, because there are four verses that jump out of nowhere that the Hebrew writer thinks is a big deal. When we go back to Genesis 14, we find that Abraham is uh, coming back after a victorious battle, rescuing his nephew Lot. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in a story, there is a surprising twist, right? We love that in a story, right? And the surprising twist is four verses. And out of nowhere, Melchizedek pops up. Chapter 14, verse 8. And notice, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's another name for peace, or Jerusalem, brought out, notice, this is important, bread and wine, and he was priest of God Most High. And verse 19 begins, he blessed Abraham. And notice, equally important, after being blessed, Abraham, as an act of worship to the same God they worshipped, offers him a tithe, an offering. But why is this important? Abraham's actions to Melchizedek do two things. They center Abraham and Melchizedek in the same God they worship. But more importantly to our story is that Abraham legitimizes Melchizedek as a priest of God. He legitimizes the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's all the press that Melchizedek gets in Genesis. So as thoughtful listeners, thoughtful readers of the text, you go, good grief. Why on earth is Melchizedek such a big deal in Hebrews chapter 7? What is that? What's going on? The only other time in all of the Old, New Test Old Testament, 39 books, it's a lot of verses, y'all. The only other time Melchizedek pops up in the whole Testament is a Psalm of David, Psalm 110. And it is David that puts Melchizedek on the front row of visibility in the New Testament. Think of it this way. 
Johnny Carson in The Tonight Show used to be famous for making famous people. Famous. Great comedians, right? They got their big moment on Johnny Carson and Jay Leno, and now Jimmy Fallon, right? You get on a show like that, you could be a who's who, or who's that, and you become a who's who. I mean, just overnight. And from the Old Testament standpoint, when you get on the stage with David, when David puts you in his psalm, you become something important. David raises Melchizedek as an obscure figure and places him front and center in one of the most important psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, David speaks of the Messiah, the anointed one who would come, and he compares him to who knows who. Guess who? Melchizedek. And notice, this is quoted both in verse 17 and 21 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. And the verse is, the Lord is sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah who would come would be both priest and king. Now what we have here in Hebrews 7, and you can impress your friends with this if you want, this week is we have the literary structure and format used by ancient rabbis called Midrash. Midrash is not something you get on your stomach from an allergy, okay? A Midrash is a commentary of an old sacred text that brings illumination to its place in redemptive history or to the story. It brings clarity to the story. It helps us put all the pieces of the story together in a coherent way. It is a picture that paints a person the Messiah Jesus. And don't miss this. It's a double black diamond, I know. Hang in there. The Hebrew writer is saying these four remote verses in Genesis 14 describing Melchizedek are the key to understand who Jesus is and why he came and why it matters to you and me today. That's amazing. Melchizedek is like the key that opens the door. He's the combination. You'll notice also in chapter 7, as you read it and study it, there are three priests contrasted. Melchizedek, in a unique way, the Levitical priests who were the Old Testament priests, the family that were the priests, and then the great high priest Jesus. Now, when we hear the word priest in our cultural context, sometimes things sort of come to mind that can be negative or distant, depending on a religious tradition. A priest in this context is not someone who just leads a mass or leads worship or leads a wedding. Uh, 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 that's not the idea here. The priest, in the Old Testament sense, the Levitical priest, is like a spiritual lawyer, an advocate who allowed a sinful worshiper to come to the temple and worship God. The priest was the advocate. It's like if you were to go to court, you never go to court without a lawyer. You'd never seek to defend yourself. That'd be stupid. An Old Testament worshiper would never go to the temple without a high priest as the advocate. That's the picture. The priest was the spiritual go-between. Now, they came from one tribe, as the text says, from Levi, and their sole focus was to bridge or advocate through sacrifices and the shedding of animals' bloods and the prayers that they gave to atone or satisfy the wrath of God over the sins of his people. This whole elaborate system in the Old Testament was very important. 
But the Hebrew writer says it was just a foreshadow of what was to come. The ultimate one who would come and shed his own blood and be the final sacrifice that would satisfy the righteous wrath of a holy God. That would allow you and me to be forgiven of our sin and to have an intimacy with God that we had lost in the garden. The Garden of Eden. The Hebrew writer is doing here in chapter 7 and will continue to do in our messages in chapter 8, 9, and 10. And he's repeatedly saying in different ways, like looking through the different facets of a diamond, a double black one, is that sin is deadly serious. But Jesus, the better high priest, can deal with it. Jesus can deal with it. Now don't miss this. The whole trajectory of the Old Testament revelation takes us to the front doorsteps of Jesus, his cross and his empty tomb. To miss that is to miss the story. Jesus is the good lawyer we can all trust. He is our advocate. And this is where the Hebrew writer goes. He moves from the Old Testament flashback now to Jesus as the New Testament fulfillment. Jesus is the better high priest. And you'll notice starting verse 22, he tells us, and we're going to unpack this more next week, he tells us that he is the new and better way. He's a new way. It's a new day and a new way. It's a new covenant. But notice in verses 23 to the end of the chapter. In a persuasive way, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the great high priest, and he gives us three reasons why. Notice, he points out Jesus' permanence as the high priest, his power as the high priest, and his perfection. So the text builds around Jesus the high priest, his permanence, his power, and his perfection. Notice verses 23 through 24. The former priest, he writes, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood, notice the text, permanently because he continues forever. Now, to understand what's going on here, think with me about an advertisement. Remember, this is a sermon that was circulated as a letter. So persuasion is the literary structure of this text. He is seeking to persuade them about Jesus being the way, the better, true high priest. So how does he do that? He paints a literary contrasting picture juxtaposed right next to each other. The picture would be like advertisements today. You know, a weight loss advertisement, right? There's the before picture that's really gross. I mean, you look, make someone look as bad as you can, and then someone who's glamour perfect. It's that contrast. Or someone who wants more hair that doesn't have hair, and now has all kinds of hair. Or before Surgery after surgery, cosmetic surgery, whatever. That's the picture. That's the literary structure he's doing. And the contrast is so vivid because you have a picture of the former priests, many priests, who are dead. So you have many dead corpse. That's the picture. You got that ugly picture? Many dead corpse. Contrasted with the one eternal, glorious, radiant Jesus in verse 16 who says he's lived an indestructible life. He wants them to see the contrast of the old system and the new. And remember, Jesus is introduced in Hebrews as the one who is the radiance of divine glory. He wants us to see the contrast. One is the unflattering side and one is the glorious side. The indestructible life. 
Jesus' indestructible life. It's put on display for us to grasp with heart and mind. He is saying because Jesus' permanent priesthood was declared in his resurrection, you and I can have confidence. He will always be there for you and me as our advocate. Our good lawyer is by our side. We can trust him who died for us because his life is eternal. It is indestructible. Not like the former Levitical priests. Notice the emphasis now, not only in his permanence, but his power. Notice the text in verse 25. He says, consequently, and this is a, a logical connection to what he said before. It's a logical connector. He is able, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you see what that text is saying? Jesus' priestly power is highlighted for us. The word able has a powerful idea to it. And Jesus' atoning death, his sacrificial death, his satisfying death, his power over death is able to save you and me from sin and death. Notice also the word uttermost. Some English translations describe this as completely. It's a good translation. What's going on here? The idea is, is that Jesus is fully capable to rescue us fully no matter how badly we are lost. I was reminded of this picture recently in watching a really good indie movie, and I commend it to you. I think it's beautiful in its artistry. Uh, and, of course, I kind of like Robert Redford. Uh, but it, the movie is all it's lost, and I won't tell you all about it because, well, I won't spoil it for you, okay? But watching this movie recently really grabbed me. Because the story, I'll give you briefly the story, and I encourage you, I think, I think you'd really love it. It's, it's, there are very few words that Robert Redford says. And it's a story of a man whose ship gets beat up and he's lost at sea. And you walk through his ingenious attempts to save himself. But the movie reminds us in such compelling ways that he can't do it. All of us, all of us, are not just spiritually confused, we are spiritually lost. Without Christ to rescue us, I face, you face, the most hellish peril. Just like Robert Redford needs someone to rescue him, at sea, you and I need someone to rescue us. All is lost unless we are rescued. The gospel writer Luke gives us such hope here. You remember as Jesus is crucified on that Friday afternoon, we call Good Friday, two others are crucified with him. You remember that? Two criminals, guilty as sin. One of the criminals, the thief on the cross, says to Jesus, and Luke gives us the exact words, Jesus, he looks at Jesus, I can imagine with tears in his eyes as he's crying out in pain on the cross, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly I say to you, you will be with me in paradise. This criminal, this lost soul says to Jesus, I know I'm going to die, and I know judgment is around the corner. He had great clarity about reality. 
And he says to Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my good lawyer before a holy God. Will you be my advocate? And Jesus says to him, trust me, I will take care of it. See, the good news of the gospel is that while all is lost, all is lost, Jesus has come to my rescue and to your rescue. Hear me carefully. There is no sin so great, no prodigal son or daughter in such a far country of rebellion, no life that has been so bad or lived so poorly, no one who is so far gone that Jesus is not eager and willing and able to come to their rescue if they're willing to be rescued. And notice also in verse 25 that Jesus not only rescues us, he continues to rescue us and intercede for us. Do you see what the text says? That in your life, Jesus is always there with you. He's always there with you to pray for you, to care for you, to help you in your time of need. Notice his priesthood is permanent. His priesthood is powerful. And notice where the writer goes. Jesus' priesthood is perfect. Look at verses 26 through 28. You'll notice the Hebrew writer does something only here in the book. He presses in to Jesus, his perfect person and his perfect sacrifice. Now, sometimes the word priest for us today has negative connotations, doesn't it? Or even pastor, religious leader. Because humans let us down. Some of us are rightly burned by pastors or priests or religious leaders who haven't been priestly or pastorly. Perhaps we've been hurt by some. But this text, friends, says that there is one who will never let you down, who is entirely good and trustworthy. This is Jesus, our better high priest. Look at the beautiful description of Jesus' glory. His perfect character. Notice the text. He is holy. He is beautiful and perfect. Most perfect, beautiful being of the universe. That's Jesus. He is innocent. He is unstained, unstained, the text says. He is separated from sinners. The idea there is it's not that he doesn't care for sinners, but he is so unique, he is not sinful. He's not like us. And notice he is exalted. Paul says in Philippians that this Jesus is exalted where every knee will bow in heaven and earth. This is the perfect high priest that is your good lawyer and my good lawyer. You can trust him. Not only is he infinitely good, his payment for your sin and mine is perfect. Jesus didn't offer up a sheep or a goat or many sheep or goat, goats. He offered up the most precious reality of the universe, his own life for you and me. And he said on the cross, it is finished. Once and for all, my sacrifice. This is the advocate we have. This is the hope of the gospel. So the second question as we think about reflection this morning is why do we need him? Why do we need this better advocate? And what I'm going to suggest for our reflection as we launch into this section of the text is with your good lawyer, with my good lawyer, first there is true hope. It seems to me we live in a very hopeless world. I hear it in the voices and see it in the faces of many people I counter along the way this week. I was in the home of a family whose son took his life. It's hard to put to words the grief 
that family's feeling and how they're crying out for hope. I see it in the latest headlines. I hear it in the breaking news story. I hear it in your breaking hearts and your emails. The difficulty of your marriage, your business, your work. But this text says, in the authority of God's word, your hope is not some Freudian illusion, a crutch to get you through the day. Your hope is anchored in time and space, history, and the one true God who has given you hope in the gospel. problem is we look for hope in all the wrong places. A relationship with others, a boyfriend, girlfriend, our accomplishments on and off the field, our grades, our careers, our financial security. Somehow we think we can gain greater self-esteem. If we just prove ourselves to others, we're important, we feel good. If we just can be religious, I can just do all this, I can, I can be good enough for God, I can, I can feel good about myself. But you and I will never find true adequacy in ourselves or in our relationships with others or in our achievements. Our adequacy, our hope has to come from outside ourselves. We need a good lawyer. We need a better advocate. And if you've embraced Jesus Christ, the high priest, the great high priest, as your Lord and Savior by faith through grace. Your life is secure in Him. You have nothing to fear, nothing to hide, nothing to prove. You are set free from the soul suffocating bondage of trying to prove yourself valuable. You are valuable. You were created by Him. You've been redeemed by Him. You are a child of God. In Christ, you are fully forgiven. You are fully pleasing to God. Not because of what you have done or how you think, but what Jesus has done for you. You have a great advocate. You are secure in his love both now and forever. This is why the text reminds us throughout Hebrews, we'll see this. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. Draw near to me. There is a way to draw near to experience the intimacy our hearts long for. We've already heard this invitation in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Let me remind us of that. He says, draw near to me. Texas says, and we have a high priest, a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus is not only the good lawyer, he is the ultimate advocate. Jesus knows what you are going through. He is the good lawyer who cares for you when you're going through it. He is the good lawyer who is there with you by your side, who is praying for you when you are going through whatever you're going through. Now that is good news. Sometimes we fail to hear the good news of the gospel. I think because of paralyzing fear, and we now and experience this, he wrote a marvelous little book called The Return of the Prodigal, which I commend to you, and he describes what this paralyzing fear did in his life. It's a little longer of a quote, but I'd like to read it to you. Listen carefully in heart. 
It dawned on me, he writes, that even my best theological and spiritual formation had not been able to completely free me from a father God who remained somewhat threatening and fearsome. All I had learned about the Father's love had not fully enabled me to let go of an authority above me who had power over me and would use it according to his will. Somehow God's love for me was limited by my fear of God's power. And it seemed wise to keep a careful distance, even though the desire for closeness was immense. I know that I share this experience with countless others. I've seen how the fear of becoming subject to God's revenge and punishment has paralyzed the mental and emotional lives of many people independently of their age, religion, and lifestyle. This paralyzing fear of God is one of the greatest human tragedies. Not minimizing the awesomeness of God or blurring boundaries of the proper fear of God, Jesus, our high priest, our advocate, shatters any paralyzing fear of God and invites us to draw near to him. So will you embrace Jesus, the better high priest? Will you pursue a Lenten pilgrimage and draw near to him during this Lenten season? Benny Crosby was a marvelous hymn writer. She was born blind, yet she had extraordinary vision. The story is said that she had someone describe her as sunset. And as she went to bed that night, she couldn't sleep and thought of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. And as she thought of the sunset in the book of Hebrews, she penned these words. I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love for me. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. Draw me near. Draw me near, blessed Lord, to the cross which thou hast died. Draw me near, near, blessed Lord, to thy precious bleeding side. Jesus is the great high priest the great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he invites us this morning to draw near to him at his holy table. Isn't it interesting that like Melchizedek, who brought out the bread and the wine and blessed Abraham, Jesus brought out the bread and wine and blessed his disciples in the upper room. He took bread and offered a blessing to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Wow. And Jesus took the cup after supper saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, the high priest, the great advocate, invites us to come to the Holy Communion table, and the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are not to come to the table lightly, but we are to quiet our hearts in the spirit of confession and reflection before we come to his table. So let's bow our hearts and minds And enjoy a moment of silent reflection, remembering the words. I'd like it quiet. Enter into this quiet. Scripture says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all righteousness. Let us hear his voice.
draw us near as individuals, but as a church family this Lenten season. Lord, as we come around your holy communion table, may we remember your death until you come. May you bless the bread and the juice. And may we feast at your table. In Jesus' name. Amen. Christ community, we practice open communion. That means that you don't have to be an official member of Christ community, but we do ask that you have by faith in Jesus Christ alone, trust him as your Lord and Savior. And all of our his are invited to come to his holy communion table. There are stations around. Please come as groups. We'll share the Lord's table together. Jesus invites all of our his to come. Please come.